and welcome back to Plenty Plenty Zuzu. My name is Connor. And I'm Stephanie. And we are your co-hosts and each week we will be adding a new species of plant and animal to our imaginary hypothetical zoo slash botanical garden here on Planty Planty Zuzu. Boo! This week we are going back to our roots. We've not got any guests on, it's just me and Stephanie for somewhere between 45 minutes and 4 hours of animal and plant based content. We just decided it'll be nice to have a nice normal episode, have a bit of bit of fun with it, not that the others haven't been fun, but back to our standard business as usual kind of episode. Yeah, we have still got three episodes to release with guests from Global Bird Fair and they'll be coming along at a later date. But for this week, it's just us two. So... How have you been, Steph? What have we been up to? We had a lovely time visiting your family recently. Yes, last weekend, didn't we? We went back and saw my family. And it was a heat wave. It was the beginning and end of summer for me because summer begins when we hit 27 degrees centigrade Celsius. Is that the same? Doesn't matter. Uh, and it ends when we drop below. And for me, summer began that one week where it hit over 27 and then went down in September. Yeah, it was a lovely, if slightly concerning week. I got a tan very quickly. You know what else I did? I went swimming in not my usual swimming pool. I went to Clevedon to the Marine Lake. Oh, yes. Of with our did. good pal Lorna. And it was magical. I, if you live in Bristol, near Bristol, you should definitely go. It's a 250 metre tidal pool. So it's massive. There were fish in there. Apparently there was an eel. And we just went swimming up and down, splashing around, having the time of our lives. So, yeah, I'm very sad that that was the beginning and end of my summer <laughs> marine pool experience. Side note, I really enjoy the way you say eel. How do I say eel? Eel. Eel. You say it? Eel. Eel. It's an eel. You give it two syllables. That's how it's meant to be said. No, it's not. It's got three letters. How's that room for two syllables? What other word? Ego. Oh, crap. You got me there. (laughs) (laughs) Now that I think about it, it's probably a few. I'm not going to think too much into the the first word that I thought of was ego. I'm not going to think too much into that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, but that's been us, hasn't it? Yeah. So, who's going first this week? Plant or animal? What we reckon? I'm very excited about mine, but I did earlier say you could go first. You go first. Are you sure? Yeah, because I know you're excited too. Okay, that's cool. Because now we're back to our usual format of just us two, it means that we don't know what each other are talking about. Yeah. So I get to get you to guess again. Oh, yay, I've missed that. Can you please take up your pen and your paper? Because I'm once again going to get you to show off your tragic drawing skills. We have some really nice pens here. Gonna go for a green, green, blue, blue, green. Okay, so first up, this animal is a beigey greeny colour. Con. What? <laughs> What's a beigey green colour? Wait, what about like a khaki green? Let's go for that one. Okay. Okay, I've got it. Yep. So, they've got an elongated body with a torpedo shape, so it gets thinner towards the back. Slug. Which ends the back there? That end. Okay. Is it wrong? How can it be wrong? It's got big, round, protruding eyes on the top of its flat head. Stingray. It's not a stingray. It's got prominent pectoral fins located far forward and halfway down on their bodies. They stick out to the side quite flat. Like, I know how badly this is wrong. <laughs> it's got a big, wide mouth. When have you ever seen an animal's mouth go that way? <laughs> 
it's <laughs> it's it's got gills on the side of its body, and that body is covered with scales and coated in a mucus layer. Okay, the scales gonna take me a little while. I'll just etc. <laughs> and then some mucus. Ooh. Is it a roundworm? It's not a roundworm. It's got scales and fins. Is it a type of fish? It is a type of fish. It's also got a pair of fins at the back and a pair at the bottom of the body underneath the pectoral fins. Gosh, that's got six fins. Greedy. Some species also have big dorsal fins. Usually a tall one at the front and a shorter one that's longer at the back. Is it a type of shark? No. No, it is not a type of shark. Are we putting this one on the fridge? Uh, Most species are covered in spots and some stripes. And in some species, those spots are blue, red, or green. I feel like I know what this is. Like, I can picture it. Leopard shark. No. A fish. (laughs) Puffer fish. No. Um... And finally, it's got cup-like structures that hold water underneath its eyes. That's weird. Love it. Squid. What about that (laughs) suggests a squid? When have you ever seen a squid with one fin, let alone... (laughs) Eight. It's because when, you, when you're telling me what's on it, my brain can only process one thing at a time. So it's going, I don't know, cups, <laughs> squid. I'm I, not pulling this information I together. I genuinely cannot tell you how far away from this creature that diagram is. Octopus? <laughs> don't look at me like what that. What do you mean, octopus? It's the spots thing. Blue, red. It's in the ocean. At what point did I say it was in the ocean? In this, you said scales. Oh, you said fins. Yeah. What what has fins and isn't in the ocean? We're about to find out. Oh my god! A bird. Any guesses? Uh, flying fish. No. Some kind of lizard. We've already established it's a fish, honey. But you said it's not in the ocean. Oh, because fish live in other places than oceans. <laughs> <laughs> Trout. God. <laughs> I'm so lost. I don't know. Put me out of this torture. <laughs> Would you like me to show you? Yes. What it is. Oh, what a cutie. Is that taken on terrestrial land or under the sea? That's taken on land. Any what? ideas what it is? A goober. It looks like it should be called a goober. Maybe a goofer. Is it? <laughs> that doesn't look that different to my drawing. What do you mean? No, if you do it this way up... <laughs> <laughs> it looks really well. It looks quite similar. Uh, all listeners, we are going to be putting this picture up on social media because I cannot overstate enough how bad this drawing is. I'll write its name underneath so that you know what way around it goes. Goober. This is yeah. a mudskipper. Oh, I've heard of those. Are you sure? Yeah. Are, are you sure you've heard of those? Uh, I mean, yeah. I don't think I've ever laid eyes on one. I think that's quite clear, yeah. (laughs) Even a photo of one. (laughs) Yeah, well, you're going to try and guess my plant species later. And you know what? They've not got common names yet. So (laughs) good luck. (laughs) So yeah, this is a mudskipper. This one is a great blue spotted mudskipper because it's got great blue They're pretty great. But there are 32 to 34 different species of mudskippers. Scientists can't quite agree on exactly how many. They're really, really cool. I can't wait to tell you about them. I'll do it. So I'm going <laughs> to. They've got really cool names, some of them. You've got the Great Blue Spotted Mudskipper. You've got the Pug-Headed Mudskipper. Nice. Which I enjoy. One of the most common ones you might see is the Atlantic Mudskipper. 
You've also got the giant mudskipper. But, my favourite, there's a debate over whether they're mudskippers or not. They're called goggle-eyed gobies. <gasps> I said goober. You were pretty close because they're, they're in the goby family. You got fairly close. I did. You did. You'll notice that picture was taken on land that I showed you there. Because mudskippers are amphibious fish. So they often actually spend more time on land than in water. And if they're not able to leave the water, they can actually drown. I didn't realise there were any amphibious fish. I didn't realise that was a thing. Well, I've opened your eyes. You have. What I you? can show you the world. Through fish. One fish at a time. They drown in the water. If they stay on there for too long, yeah. Mm. So they breathe like fish through their gills and so when they're out of water if they dry out they can stick together and then they're useless and then your mudskipper dies so when it comes onto land it closes the gill chambers and traps water and air inside so they can actually still work and they expand so they can absorb more and more oxygen so it makes it look like it's kind of got puffed up cheeks a little bit like a slimy hamster So it's got like, these really puffed up cheeks to, just to help it breathe on land. But it can also take in oxygen through their skin and through the lining of their mouths. <laughs> nice. So you'll often uh, see just them. so you know, because you can't see, Connor just showed me the inside of his mouth to demonstrate. Just in case you didn't know what the inside of a mouth looked yeah. like. Yeah, no, that's um, fair. And so they'll kind of lie there, puffed up cheeks, mouth open on the mudflats and stuff. And you said, what's got fins but isn't found in the ocean? They're found in intertidal habitats. So that can be on shorelines and stuff, but it can also be rivers that are affected by tides as well. It's more kind of in your mangroves and stuff. Intertidal habitats meaning habitats that are above water when tide is low and below water when tide is high. So they're found across quite a lot of the world in Africa, Asia, Australia, the Philippines, and the islands of Samoa and Tonga as well. Oh, cool. It needs a really humid environment where there's access to quite a lot of water and they can frequently go back because they need to keep moisten in their skin because of that absorption of oxygen through the skin, which is called cutaneous breathing. Mm. So they've got a really thin skin full of capillaries and they have to like keep going back into the water or... If they're just on land, but on a quite a soggy land, they'll just roll around a little bit. Oh, like, oh. They are. Like a dog. I cannot emphasize enough how adorable these little animals they are. They are very cute. They are brilliant. Um, and goofy. And really goofy. So they also evolved the ability to blink independently from tetrapods that you find on land. So I said that they had really kind of high up eyes. Yeah. And cups of water underneath their eye. Mm. So those are called the dermal cups. And what they do is when they blink, rather than like eyelids coming across, yeah. their eyes get lower and the cups get higher. So they effectively like dunk their <gasps> eyes in a little cup of water. Oh my goodness. Almost like you're cleaning contact lenses. Yeah. Like they like dunk their eyes. Oh, I'm just picturing, I'm looking at you right now and I'm picturing you doing that and it is the weirdest thing. That's not even the coolest bit. Like there's so many cool bits. They're called mud skippers. Why? Do they skip across the mud? Is it how they move? Absolutely right. They've got those little pectoral fins that come out to the side and they effectively, they've got a little bit of a kind of joint in them, almost like a limb. So they can use them effectively like legs to help them walk across land and they move those at the same time. Mm. So rather than kind of like we move our legs independently, Ah. they move those at the same time. So it's called crutching because it looks like a person using a crutch to move. Oh, that's very interesting. But they can also, and this is where Mudska comes in, they can skip, they can jump and they can climb. So they skip by effectively flipping their tails and their bodies from side to side and just kind of like throwing themselves oh. across 
these kind of mud flats using the curling of their basically their entire body and their tails as well and that's kind of where that skipping motion comes from i've got a nice little video how cool is that <gasps> it's like a body slam and imagine if you had to like body slam yourself down to move everywhere and so they've got those pectoral fins off to the side that they can use kind of almost like legs mm. but those pelvic fins that they've got underneath kind of help keep them steady but in some species they can act a little bit like a sucker to help them climb as well so they like throw themselves about and then every now and then they're like <laughs> onto like a rock or something. So that helps them climb and get over a bit of height as well. They can also swim. And when they swim, they swim like a crocodile with like their head and their eyes sticking out of the water. They can't even be a normal fish. No, they've got like half of themselves out of the this water. This is the coolest animal. I don't understand how I've never heard of it before. It's bringing me so much joy. It is brilliant. And most of them are carnivores. What? So they, they eat insects, worms, small crustaceans, mm. and sometimes other mudskippers. Oh, I knew uh, that was going to be my first thing. Do they eat like mudskipper young or something? Because carnivorous fish always do weird yeah, things like that. They can eat other mudskippers. Do you want to hear well. a joke about a crustacean? Yeah, go for it. What's the difference between a dirty bus stop and a, a crab with boobs? <laughs> I know. My favourite jerk. One's a crusty bus station. Yeah. And one's a busty crustacean. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why, but I memorised that joke so freaking hard when I learnt it, and it's the only joke I can tell. That's incredible. Yeah, it does mean every time I, word, I hear the word crustacean, though, I'm like, guys, does anyone want a joke? <laughs> uh, note to self, don't add any more crustaceans no more to Plants Plants is easy. <laughs> but going back to the way they eat, scientists from... The University of Antwerp found that the Atlantic mudskipper, which is one of the species I'm going to be adding, because mm. spoiler, I'm adding more than one species today. Oh, breaking the rules. It will, it uses what they call a hydrodynamic tongue. Hmm, what the hell is that? <laughs> so they don't have a tongue, right? Okay. And so what they do is they fill up their mouth with water. Yeah. And they kind of swish that around to help move their prey so they can eat it properly. So rather than like poking your food around with your tongue, if it gets like stuck in your teeth or you need to move it around in humans they just like swish water around they kind of swill around wow and so they will cover their prey in water and then suck it into their mouth and that's how they catch it it's like suction base they go like, wow and that's how they catch their prey have they got like a really unique evolutionary tree ancestor whatever because i've just i've not heard of anything that does things like this yeah props <laughs> Cool. <laughs> um, yeah, they've probably got a really unique evolutionary history, but I don't know anything about it. If any uh, fish evolutionary biologists are listening, get in touch. We'd love to interview you. <laughs> we have uh, several questions. They're quite different, again, to most intertidal fish and organisms, because most of them feed when they cover with water at high tide, and then hide or kind of become inactive, slow down a little bit when it's low tide. Mudskippers are exactly the opposite. They're most active on land at low right. tide. That makes sense because they go on the land. They've also got quite a unique mating reproductive courtship system as well. Nice. So the male mudskippers will build burrows by filling their mouth with mud and dropping it away. So basically they're digging using their mouth. They're like... <laughs> These guys. <laughs> basically anything people do with hands... They do with their mouth. They do with their mouth. Digging. It's like they're, they're trying to be human, but they're fish. They just feel that like you don't have the hands for but it. They're so doing they're their like, best. I wanna, yeah. I wanna be a human. I wanna dig like you, <laughs> skip like you. Wow, it's true. We, we really want to hope like Disney don't listen to this podcast. We're I don't think they're gonna listen to that and go, oh my goodness, she's <laughs> taken that. 
What a talent. Some species of mudskipper, once they're building their burrow, will even build a wall around their burrow. Aww. So it can like catch some water. And when the tide goes out, it creates a little pool. So they've got their own little pool to cover their water. Have in. they started to invest in crypto? <laughs> We've got to follow that evolution. The water inside a burrow would normally have like this really, really low oxygen content. So researchers have found that at least a few different species of mudskipper would actually gulp air and then release it into their burrow to kind of create a little air bubble so they can still breathe. (gasps) That's clever. So they got a pool. So they can like boop, pop out. They got an air chamber. Yeah. And they've got like kind of these vaulted ceilings to this burrow which helps with the air pockets and stuff and is linked to them being able to survive in these burrows with this water that just doesn't have any oxygen. Wow. Or at least any dissolved oxygen. It usually has oxygen in particles that it's the oxygen is kind of captured in there, so things like nitrates and stuff. Mm. So you can't just take the oxygen straight out of the water. So that's the first stage. And then once a burrow has been dug, the male will head back to land to attract a female. And that's when their patterns change in the breeding season. They get those brightly coloured spots, those big blue, red, etc. spots. And they get coloured throats as well in some species. So they'll show off with a courtship display. They'll puff their dorsal fins up a bit. They'll undulate their body, wriggle, jump, spread their fins. They'll do everything to show off to the females. And if she likes what she sees, she'll follow the male into the burrow. And she'll lay hundreds of eggs, basically on the walls of the burrow. Hmm. And leave them there to be fertilised. And after that happens, she basically leaves them alone. She comes in, lays her eggs, do your thing, and then she's gone. Mm -hmm. And he will keep them safe from predators. He'll look after them until they hatch. He will be in charge of making sure those youngsters survive. But before they can kind of attract those females, they'll also display to rivals as well. So if there's other males that are around fighting over females or even territory as well, they will flash those fins. And that's a really big kind of warning sign, a big, oi, get away. Mm. So they use those fins for quite a few different things. I just think it's so interesting. All that behaviour is absolutely incredible. So unique. I love them. They're my new favourite. I don't think I had a favourite fish before now, but now I do. Yeah. I'm really happy. And those blue-spotted mudskippers, the ones I showed you, that have the really impressive dorsal fins, they're one of the most territorial, hence why they've got those bigger Mm. fins. They're one of the species I'm going to add. Okay. The other species is the Atlantic mudskipper, Mm -hmm. which can live up to five years. So they're fairly long-lived for a fish as well. And then the giant mudskippers also going in, and they can get up to 27 centimetres long. Cool. So that's like, what, two thirds of an adult's arm? Nice. They can be. That's huge. Look how big that is. <gasps> that's so freaky looking. Oh, wow. He's holding it with two hands. They're incredible. Mm, I love them. Now, in terms of conservation, they're pretty fine. All species are least concerned. That's wonderful but news. But quite a lot of them have declined in the past and actually ha- had a bit of a rebound. So those declines are usually linked to overfishing, unregulated pollution. And unsuitable fishing methods, so things like fishing with electricity or cyanide as well, Mm. that can kind of kill more than it's intended to. And lots of urban development as well that's causing issues with the intertidal habitats. But there have been quite a few initiatives that have been put in place to increase the water quality and stuff and reduce unsuitable fishing methods. So a lot of the indigenous peoples as well that operate and live within the habitats of mudskippers Mm. have made quite a lot of efforts to stop using unsuitable fishing methods and so they have bounced back a little bit which is good because they can also impact food chains because they have quite a few predators in the shape of shorebirds and snakes and things like that so if their numbers go down the numbers of animals around them go down as well so it's good that they're doing pretty well yeah brilliant so nice to talk about an animal like that yeah and it's actually i think that's the first animal that we 
It might be the first animal reality to plant plenty of zoos that is least concerned. Really? Potentially. Mm. In terms of zoos, they're actually held in quite a few collections around the world. Not a huge amount in the UK, but they're usually kept in kind of mangrove-themed enclosures. So lots of kind of mangrove trees, lots of strangler figs and things oh. like that. With a kind of low water level, so they can burrow, they can hang out on land. So they're often quite nice-looking enclosures. Mm. They're often kept in mixed species enclosures with some animals that would share those habitats as well. So things like horseshoe crabs, fiddler crabs, archer fish as well, which is another Ooh, amazing fish. Yeah, I like those. So here are some of the ones, those mangrovey big nice. roots and stuff. Oh, beautiful. Like fairly big as well. And then this one from Chiang Mai Zoo is an actual outside enclosure for them. That's cool. Now that makes sense because that's in Thailand. So that's kind of the habitat they'd be used to. So you probably wouldn't be able to have an outside enclosure for them in the UK because mm. that's not going to be very conducive to mosquitoes staying alive. But I think that's a gorgeous enclosure and that's on the entrance way to their aquarium as well, which is a really nice kind of setup to actually going into a different area. Stunning. So I love that. But one of the really exciting things, and you came a little bit too late to see this, we used to have them at Bristol Zoo. Oh. Down in the aquarium, we used to no. have... In the mangrove d- enclosure. Yeah, do you I remember... I loved that display. Yeah, so the, that mangrove enclosure, we had like the little drippy water yeah. across the windows. We had like a nice little watery pool. And we used to have dwarf Indian mudskippers, which was one of the smaller species. So they could only get up to about seven centimetres. So they're teeny tiny, but they were absolutely brilliant. It was one of my absolute favourite enclosures in that aquarium, which is saying something because that aquarium was brilliant. It was, it was little but mighty. I don't know that I'd ever heard of mudskippers before I went and saw them at Bristol Zoo. So I think oh. that's probably why I knew about them. Yeah. But they were just the most fun to watch, kind of skipping around Pootlin. So that brings us on to where I want them and how I want them. Mm. I'm going to use these guys as a nice added extra for a big tropical reptile amphibian invertebrate house. Because so far in Plenty Plenty Zoo, we've got lots of reptiles, we've got amphibians and stuff. We've got them kind of scattered around mm. in geographical areas. Yeah. But I just love... A good a, build. I love a good build. I love a good tropical house. Mm. Especially one that doesn't focus on your mammals and your birds because they get enough attention elsewhere. I love a big tropical house that's focusing on your little weird creatures. Mm. Again, something Bristol Zoo did absolutely brilliantly. Yeah. Their reptile house was phenomenal. So I want that to be a kind of bigger building, but you've got your kind of rainforest or your mock rock or your plants or things like that. Your animals in your big vivariums are closed off to the side. Mm. In the middle, I want a line, like almost like a full-on river, with your mangrove trees. Oh my gosh. With your strangler figs. Yes. And then your kind of intertidal habitat in the middle. Crisscrossed by bridges, so you can actually walk over, look down into the habitat. Mm. Almost like you're walking along a river or a coastline. Oh, that in somewhere like West Africa or Japan or these places you find mudskippers. Mm. And because I'm going to have these three different species that come from three slightly different places, I want to have them in a line in three neighbouring enclosures so that as you walk down from one end to the other, you're transitioning through different places. And so the tanks to either side will also transition. So you can kind of go on a straight line journey through the world with all of the reptiles, amphibians and everything in that house. Amazing. Transitions from one place to the other as you walk along. That's and fabulous. And your mudskippers can kind of indicate <laughs> that as well. So you can start at one 
in with your Atlantic mudskippers and the animal tanks around can be from kind of Western Africa. And then you get a divider for the enclosure that can be kind of covered by a bridge hidden away or it can be rocks or whatever kind of hidden away to make it look nice and natural. And then you can have the great blue spotted mudskipper from the coast of Japan, Sumatra, Malaysia, places like that. And then at the end, you get your giant mudskippers in from a fairly similar region in kind of Southeast Asia as well and up to kind of bits of New Guinea and stuff. So you can kind of transition on that way. If you move that way, you're going up in size because your Atlantic mudskippers oh. are about 16 centimetres, your great blues are 20, and then you end on the giants that are 27 centimetres. Really long, really impressive. And you can kind of show the, the diversity in those species as well, which I think would be really, really exciting. That's amazing. So this... You can see how much you think all this stuff through. Whereas like mine just come in with all my stupid manic ideas <laughs> that I make up on the spot and yours are all beautifully thought out. That's fantastic. I want to see that in real life. But yeah, I've decided mudskippers are my new favourite animal. They are favourite Just so brilliant. You know what this means? We're going to be getting very shortly some mudskipper wall up for our nature yeah. wall. Absolutely is what it means. <laughs> I've just decided on the spot right now I want a mudskipper tattoo. <gasps> Do it. I, I've been... Th- Searching for so long for what my next tattoo is going to be. I think it might have to be a mudskipper. I see you as a mudskipper. As a gooby. Goober. Gooby gooba. That'll be funny. Do it. <laughs> I think that's a sick idea. We are going to live stream Connor getting <laughs> a mudskipper tattoo. Plenty, plenty, zizi. <laughs> We're also going to record a live podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that would be so fun. It would. <gasps> so yeah, that's mudskippers. Any further questions, Your Honour? <laughs> I want one and I want to be one. I'll be reincarnated as one. Okay, so I guess time to wrap up that section and move on to the plant department, the botanical department. Woo! Woo! So this week, I'm going to tell you up front, I also have broken the rules and I've introduced two species, but they are related in some way. I want to see if you can guess how. Wait, to each other? They have a thing that is similar. They're not fat, wait, they're not family related. They're not like in the same family or anything, but they have something that unites them, some characteristic. Okay, I was just checking they were related to each other, not to the mudskipper or something. Oh, that would have been cool, but I don't see how <laughs> that would have happened. So I'm going to say a species of palm mm-hmm. and a species of pitcher plant. Oh. What could they possibly have in common? Connor Davis, for 10 points. Guess some things. Do they share a similar name? Minus 10 points. No. Does one pitcher plant live underneath a palm? No. Do they live in the same place? Oh, these ones do actually. But that's not it. Mm. But you excited me with the word underneath because the thing that unites them... (laughs) Underneath... Hmm. No. Because <laughs> the thing that unites them is that they have some very unique qualities regarding roots. their flowering and fruits oh. being underground. <gasps> oh. A species that could flower underground? What? How? Why? You're about to find out. First up, we have Nepenthes pudica. Nepenthes. Yeah, Nepenthes. So that's the type of... I know Nepenthes, yeah. Pitcher plant, yeah. You see them all in botanical gardens. I mentioned Nepenthes in a presentation to a botanic garden conference. Proud of you. So it's Nepenthes pudica. Might be pronounced like that. Pudica. P-U-D-I-C-A. Pudica. Pudica. Like the old barbarian queen Boudica if she had an accident and didn't make it to the loo in time. And if she was... 
pronounced Boudica, which I always thought she was, but, but it's, it's Boudicca. Yeah. I wanted to call my child Boudica. I haven't ruled it out. <laughs> Something to keep in mind. You can call your child Boudica. <laughs> it won't be your child. It won't be our child, no. <laughs> so, the pitcher plant. So, a little brief overview of what they are. You've got a sort of jug-shaped kind of plant body thing at the end. It's got slippery lip. And so insects are attracted to it for its colour or whatever. They slip on the lip and they fall in. And often there's downward growing hairs to stop them climb out. And there'll be liquid at the bottom of this jug, which slowly dissolves the insects alive. Yum. Yeah. And then the plant takes in all the nutrients that way. So that's a sort of very brief overview of how pitcher plants tend to work. So the exciting thing about this one is that it is very recently known to science. So the publication describing it came out June 23rd, 2022. However, you know, that's publication date. In terms of it being found to science specifically, it probably would have been years before. Uh So actually not that rare, not that special. You're not rare or special. You did a stupid fish. (laughs) You love that fish. fish. I love the fish. I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. Pudica, it actually means shy in Latin. And that's referring to the plant's unique characteristic of having its pictures hidden underground. Wait, so the jug is yeah. underground? What? What? I know. Isn't it great? Can you think of what kind of insects or things it could end up uh, getting underground? Worms? No, not worms. Oh, I really thought I had it then. I was so excited. Well, underground. Um, worms will come up later, but that's not its prey. Moles. I don't know how big these jugs are. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just, just to check. You think there's a giant pitch plant underground that moles are slipping and falling into and then being slowly dissolved alive and eaten by... And we've hey, never heard of it before. We, we've never heard we, of that. The mole-eating plant. Hey, we, we've not explored half the oceans in the world. The rainforest might be behind some <laughs> shit too. Jesus. Uh, no, not moles. <laughs> Remember when I said insect? <laughs> oh yeah, that, Fri- that insect, a mole. <laughs> Remember when I said fish and you suggested a lizard? <laughs> yeah. Let's let's not throw stones. Ow, yeah. You live in a glass house. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Cockroaches. No. No, because they don't. Ants. Oh, of course. Yeah, ants. ants. So, basically, this very, very cool pitch plant puts its pitches underground. Does also have aerial ones, so your standard in the air ones, but they tend to be smaller. So not of primary importance. Oh, in my head it was Ariel's not above the ground, Ariel's under the sea. It was a little mermaid joke. (laughs) It's because we watched it. So Nepenthes pudica is unique within its group and even within its genus for its underground shoots, which have no chlorophyll because obviously it can't photosynthesize. It produces well-developed pitchers that form in soil cavities or directly in the soil. So it's just growing and pushing soil out the way. Its main prey is ants but other insects that live in the soil as well. Okay. And you mentioned worms earlier. There's a number of little aquatic species that are found in both the aerial and the underground pitchers. So it's like a dual pitcher system. You can find flies and roundworms there. And so they actually don't get eaten. Don't ask me how it works. I don't know. But where do you find them then? In the pitchers. In the jugs? Yeah. Just not getting dissolved? Not getting dissolved. I'm just imagining a tiny little worm wearing like a suit of armour. Just being like, you cannot dissolve me. But I can live here. 
So this plant's found in Borneo, which makes sense. It's a very incredible island specifically. Uh, it's found in a few neighbouring localities in the Mentarangulu district of North Kalimantan. It grows on ridge tops at an elevation of 1,100 to 1,300 metres. So whenever you say numbers to me, it means nothing. I like Sometimes you look at me like I should be impressed and I'm like, I have no idea what that is. So to help out people like me, it's three to four Eiffel Towers high. Damn. Yeah. High. In that case, mm. when I climbed Kilimanjaro, yep. I think I was about 16 Eiffel Towers. <gasps> you beat this pitcher plant. <laughs> did, <laughs> did you bury yourself underground and eat ants? Yeah, to be fair, we, oh, okay. we don't talk about day six. <laughs> yeah. It got pretty bad. So specifically, it's found in peat swamp forests, which sound really cool. And I want to go there and get bitten and get leeches all over me. I bet it's a really cool place. They are very waterlogged, very acidic and nutrient poor. So it's a challenging environment for most plants. So it's easy to see why such a unique mechanism has developed in this one plant. This discovery further underlines the amazing richness of biodiversity in Borneo's rainforests. They're just absolutely amazing full of so many different kinds of plants and this one being new to science is pretty exciting there's loads of plants that aren't known to science so it's very cool to keep having them logged it emphasizes how important it is to protect ecosystems especially when they've got such enormous and undiscovered biodiversity because you never know what kind of cool things you're going to come across or how you're going to come across them who would have thought there'd be pictures underneath the soil that's mad <laughs> that's like baffling how do the ants fall in so it'll be the same system of just it'll slip on the lip because to us it's like buried underground that's going to be packed in but you've got to think it, about how many air pockets and things there are and so there is still like there's still a, an air cavity in an air pocket so it's still like popping out a hole expecting to come into like a nice little cavern where it keeps it all like, like it's food or whatever and it's like oh what is this is it a nice swimming pool and then it dissolves can you imagine just walking around this flat and then suddenly you fall into this like deathly trap door thing that's what's happening to ants. It's a travesty. I, that's what it feels like when I walk into the bedroom after you've had to pick an outfit. <laughs> and you fall into a... I, I, fall, I fall into a deathly trap full of to be honest, I was, dresses. And... I was very worried about what you were going to say, Justin. <laughs> this plan, especially with it being discovered so recently to science, it's really important to think about how we can protect these kind of environments from things like logging and the development of palm oil plantations and all this human activity that can cause mm -hmm. issues. So that's one species. Okay. And so the link was that they have their things underground. So mm. you're going to tell me about a palm tree that also has things underground. Yes. Is it coconuts? No. Oh. That would be cool. Digging them up like a truffle. What else grows on palm trees? Bananas. Is it underground bananas? No. They don't grow on palm trees. They grow on banana trees. No. Cut that out. No. <laughs> no, I didn't think you Look would. at you and your silly plant knowledge. Hey, everyone, look at the idiot. <laughs> <laughs> She is so horrible to me. I will marry her. <laughs> oh. It will be such a fun life. <laughs> so yeah, we're moving on to a palm one. So this second one is actually the one I found first that made me want to see what other plants sort of had bits growing underground because it's a really interesting concept. You only really think about the stuff that you see above ground. I've read some books that have made me think about more what's going on in the soil but you just don't think of above ground bits being underground because it's like, it feels silly. Why? There's a sun up here, you know? 
but some plants have adapted that. So this very cool plant I'm talking about now, Pinenga subterranea. The people that catalogued it for science were from Kew Gardens. Oh, when did they catalog it? Ah, well, interestingly, this actually was only published in 2023, in Ooh. this year. So even newer than the other one, but again, probably found a few years before. It was an expedition led by palm researchers, which sounds incredible. John Dransfield and Paul Chai along with QPhD students Ben Kuhnhauser and Peter Pateau. They went on a seven-week expedition to Borneo to collect as many palm species as possible. And this discovery was made in the forest of Lanjak Entemel in Borneo. So we've properly gone to Borneo this week, just like me in 2019. I knew you were waiting for me to say that. (laughs) Penanga subterranea is the first known species in the palm family to exclusively flower and fruit underground. Is there anything above ground then? Yeah, they've got fronds. So here's some pictures of the last one <laughs> growing underground, the pitch plants. Cool, right? Mm. And then this is one we're talking about now. Oh, wow. It does look like someone's just buried a palm tree up yeah. to like its neck. Yeah, up to not the, the, not the, the palm tree. biological term. Its neck. neck. <laughs> so... This plan was catalogued to science very recently. So like I said, 2023 publication, very exciting. However, it wasn't discovered because it's been known to locals for generations. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a very well-known plant in Borneo. It just hadn't been, you know, typed up in the database, entered officially, that kind of thing. So this really highlights the importance of indigenous knowledge in botanical research. Yes. Because indigenous people and local people, they often already know of the existence of species and they know what they can do and they know what's interesting about them and unique and and all of these things. And being able to work with scientists or local scientists, it's uh, a really big way that we can enhance the botanical knowledge and and do conservation. The species is widespread in Western Borneo and it's actually valued by locals for its edible fruits. So you might have seen the red fruit I showed you just now. So it's edible, which is very cool. So that's how it's known for so long, because it's just like a snack to them. Oh. Yeah, dig it up. What kind of fruit? You know, red fruit. Stop asking questions. So it's found in the primary rainforest of Western Borneo. <laughs> so having underground flowering and fruiting is incredibly rare in the plant kingdom. But the entire reproductive structure, including an entire cluster of fruit and a stem, exists below the surface. So they're entirely underground. And that's only been recorded in one other plant group. Can you guess what other plant might be able to do that? Potato. Good. Ju- no, of course not. An orchid. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Potato. Potato is not a fruit. You didn't say it was a fruit. I said it fruits and flowers on the ground. And you said potato. Well, is the potato not like the fruit of no. the potato plant? It's just the root. I have come to the conclusion that I'm 25 years old and I don't know that I know what a potato is. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I am an animal boy for a reason. Yeah, this makes me feel good. Plant lady. So just so you know, flowering underground is called geoflory. Fruiting underground, geocarpy. I just quite like those words. I normally cut out... Sounds like a Pokemon. It does, doesn't it? I normally cut out these kinds of terms because, you know, it's just nonsense if you don't already know what they are. But I did. I thought those were cute, so I left them in. So the really cool thing about this plant is that there's, there's a mystery surrounding it. Scientists really don't know how it manages to pollinate. There's some information about how it's spreading seeds. So bearded pigs, 
She might know and love. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you love a good pig. Bitter pigs will eat and disperse the fruits. So that's one way that the seeds are being spread and their poop has been found to have seeds in it and then the seeds germinate. But the means of pollination are still unknown. Mm. And in case you want to picture it, the flowers underground are greenish white and inconspicuous because they're underground. <laughs> The fruit is pale white when young, but turns bright red when ripe. But they think that there's probably quite an efficient mode of pollination, even though they don't know what that mode is, just because there's high rates of fruit and seed set. Oh, so, so like, they reckon it must be pollinating quite easily because it's just yeah. everywhere. So they're wondering, small insects maybe? like. What if it's ants? Oh, and the pitchers are eating them, but they're pollinating these guys. And then nemes- that would make those two plants nemesis. So there's no common name for this plant yet or the other plant in the English language, uh, is known in, of course, Bornean languages as different things. Penang Tana, Penang Pipet, and Muring Pelendot. But there's no English term for it. Not It's not like the common or like the underground, whatever. So the fruit has a sweet taste, quite thick flesh, and a soft and juicy texture. This cataloguing to science adds to the 300 known species of palms in Borneo, one of the Earth's most biodiverse places. Wow. 300 species. The plant may play a key role in increasingly fragile ecosystems and could be important for carbon storage. So just need a bunch more research on that. And the plant joins more than 2,500 species of palms known to science, up to half of which are currently threatened with extinction. Wow. How insane is that? Imagine there being 2,500 species of leopard and half of them are going to go extinct soon. Damn. Yeah. The good news with this species, it's been recorded in a large area spanning over 60,000 kilometres squared. Who knows how many Eiffel Towers that is, I didn't look it up. (laughs) Including four protected areas, so it's looking good for them. It's been assessed as being of least concern, but the deforestation in Borneo poses a long-term threat. Yep. So... Fingers crossed, basically. As well as pollinators, scientists are hoping that there'll be further research to unravel the mysteries around this species. It just seems to have so many unique mechanisms. And again, it's just highlighting how important it is to collaborate with indigenous communities. And really interestingly, I like the point of it being kind of like a wake-up call for botanists to look beyond the immediately visible and consider underground plant life. Because if you're looking at that plant, you go like, yeah, that's a little palm in the ground, I guess. But there's all this stuff happening underneath yeah. the fruit. So it's the importance of, you know, when you're out plant hunting, as one does, <laughs> just digging stuff up. <laughs> that's not what that's not what that is. But it's basically, you know, considering other ways that plants may be growing. Yeah, of course. So those are my two species. Earlier I said I don't really think about this in advance, but I do tend to get flashes of inspiration. And one such flash, and you probably already know what it is, but we are in fact going to be building an underground sort of play park for children and adults where they act as ants. Maybe we give them little hats to really immerse themselves. And they run along, and then they'll suddenly be one of these uh, pitcher plant slides and they'll slide all the way down and then they'll live in the ground forever and then they'll fall into a pit of sulfuric acid and dissolve and they will be fed back into the mechanism why would you say that about children what's wrong with you I said nothing about that. It's a fun play park, Connor. It's a fun play park idea. It doesn't that ha- sounds exciting. They'll run around. They'll go down their picture slides. And maybe, because we're talking about how maybe ants could be pollinating the palm, maybe there could be a thing where, like, they have to find something and feed it to these pl- palms yeah. as well. <laughs> That's really cool. 
But how are you going to put the actual plants in? Mm. How are you going to show them off? Are they yes. going to be around the play area? Are they, are they going to be underground? So there's two different aspects here. One is natural selection garden. I really would like the picture, all picture plants to go in there because I just think it adds to it. I really like how, do you remember when you introduced the hyenas and you were saying can have an underground den viewing area. Yes. I want that, but for all plants that have cool stuff growing underground. So a little bit like kind of like an ant farm, you know, where you can have like that yes. slice of soil and you can see all the burrows. Yeah. But that, but, but looking at like roots. And... and then any bugs and things you find there are there. And it's kind of like how you were talking earlier about having, you know, like an aquarium or like a tropical mm. house because there's really good value in having things like that. I think having something like that for plants where it's like, it's it's a house you walk into and you are the worm or you are the ant or whatever and you can see what's going on underground you can see the life underground you can maybe even see something flowering i think that'd be amazing you could have all these ant tunnels and then rather than having a separate play park just incorporate yeah. it yeah slides going everywhere down to the next level you're seeing different plants growing there maybe deeper roots it'd be really cool you could get a really good idea for how deep roots can go yeah Someone should fund us to build this. Thank you. <laughs> so you're going to have unipenthes, some in the natural selection garden. Yeah. And then some in your... Really cool house. Underground house. Yeah. Nice. And then we've also got a couple new species in the bank for whatever we do in the Borneo area. So if you introduce a orangutan yeah. or something, you've got some plants for it. Amazing. That was really exciting. Made me realise how much of a plant idiot I am. I mean, I, I feel like I was genuinely aware of that, but mm. it's really brought it to the forefront. I am... I'm really happy I could bring that out. Not yeah. clever. <laughs> um, <laughs> not plant clever. But that was really exciting. We've got a really cool pair of plants to add. Thanks for listening, everyone. That's been this week's episode. We've had a lot of fun going back to our old format. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll be releasing another Global Bird Fair episode which is very, very exciting. So make sure you check us out on plantofplantyzuzu.com where you can sign up to our newsletter. And you can check us out on social media at plantofplantyzuzu on Instagram, at plantofplantyzoo on Twitter slash X. <laughs> uh, if you can get on there for free, which you might not be able to do fairly soon. Mm, we'll have to move over to threads. So that's all for this week. Have a lovely time. And please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on any of the listing platforms that you can find Planty Planty Zuzu on and tell your friends about us, tell everyone you know about us, scream it from the literal rooftops and hopefully we can get a few more listeners as well because we like the attention. Yes, I think we're edging closer towards a thousand listens, aren't we? Yeah, I think we're somewhere around 750 listens at the minute. We've got 200 followers on Instagram now, so oh, thank nice. you for that. And we've got, I think, 50... 57 Spotify followers so oh, shout out to you guys <laughs> whoop, whoop. Uh, you're our favourites but yeah make sure you rate, review, subscribe like Connor said and we'll see you in a couple weeks bye, bye.